Hello friends, this is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. I want to shout out to Pentalog for sponsoring this episode. Pentalog is a worldwide consulting group in IT consulting. And just to thank them properly for sponsoring, I have with me Cornell. And Cornell is the chief platform officer working at Pentalog. Cornell, what do you do every day? So as chief platform officer at Pentalog, I'm in charge with products and technology aspects of the group, a group that was acquired by Globant. So uh, uh, some activities are, are shifting, but my day-to-day -day now, uh, I, I'm involved in the integration in the group, and I'm more and more involved in technology office for the friends portfolio. And you come up with very cool topics, uh, such as the definition of the ideal CTO, and uh, you try to help CTOs to become better CTOs. What, 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 what do we have to know about that? So first of all, we didn't want to do that. We had to, because in a sense, um, in our journey to better satisfy our customers, because we essentially offer teams for our customers, we had to be careful of the way um, uh, we work with these um, uh, CTOs or CIOs and what they leave behind because when they leave their companies, we are still there and the new CTO, the new CIO is going to be either very happy, either not that happy. So we had to uh, create structures, a new philosophy, methods, tools that help uh, these people, in a sense, do a better job. And, um, okay, I can imagine what kind of tools that th those are. Um, uh, where can we understand more about them? Like, how, 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 how can we consume that? So, yeah, we already have lots of content about the CTO role on our site, pentalog.com. You can search that as a search and you search for CTO and there is there are videos and you will find um, ideal CTO, CTO strategy, uh, CTO tactics, better CTO decision-making, technical debt, and so forth. So many episodes like this. There are currently two seasons and there are also CTO talks where we take our vision and we stress it with real-world life experiences. We invite CTOs and we say, hey, this was our vision. We ask you the same questions and just tell us if you do it, if you like it, if you consider it well, how you do it in your on the trenches. So you have these two two aspects, the idealistic view, what seems to be uh, idealistic, the metaphor of the ideal CTO. And then there are real implementations from the trenches and all the answers are always different. So very interesting. Okay. And from your perspective, what is the most important thing that most CTOs could do better? Knowing, knowing what good means. So this is, uh, it might sound um, uh, not that obvious, but we rarely know what good means in this industry. It's, it's uh, every domain is large enough: cybersecurity, data, um, uh, DevOps, uh, ops, uh, development, of course, product management, in business, e-commerce, lots of domains. So, what does it mean to be good with your product in in cybersecurity? And that's very hard to know. Now we have methodologies, frameworks, and things like this, but it's very difficult to put that in your context for the product. Um, so uh, that's one of the aspects, knowing what good means, knowing what almost good means, very good or insufficient. Um, on our own language, we developed a set of tools that our customers leverage out of the box just by working with our teams. Uh, we call them maturity models. I don't know if that's the moment to, to talk more about it, but yeah, that's the differentiator. No one in the industry seems to have this um, and uh, uh, very, very appreciated. Okay, that sounds really, really cool. Um, and um, I would, I, I think like the next step for every CTO listening who wants to become better is to check out pentalog.com, search for CTO, or just come to one of our joint events where P Pentalog is also there uh, and Cornell will be there and to, to talk in person, uh, which is always like the best form of communication these days. <laughs> um, so Cornell, thanks a lot um, and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you.
See you soon. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I'm your host, Toby. And today with me is Bob Mester, who's, let's say, a popular guy in the in the product world. He is a teacher, builder, entrepreneur, co-founder of the Rewired Group, um, a design firm in Detroit, Michigan. And he developed and launched over 3,500 products, really? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and sold everything from design to services to software, in-house consumer electronics, Like everything. <laughs> eh? Yeah, I've got a lot of things. <laughs> Bob, what 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 didn't you sell? What 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 didn't you do in your yeah. career? <laughs> what's what's very interesting is is there was a couple of categories I hadn't worked in, like insurance, and and in the last couple of years I've been able to work in kind of just about every category. So I I'm not sure I can think of a category I have not worked in, <laughs> to be honest. I'm sure somebody can find one, but the, like at some point I don't know of and, one. And 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 you also um, you're the co-author of the Jobs to Be Done framework. Yeah, yeah. I, I co-architected with Clay Christensen and some other people, and and basically in the early '90s, we basically uh, came up with the idea and and used it as a method and a tool. And Clay helped turn it into kind of a theory back in around 2010 to 2016 when he wrote uh, the book uh, Competing Against Luck. And you're, you're good friends with the Basecamp guys and also um, we're consulting yeah. them, et cetera. So like a lot of overlaps. And the, the funniest overlap is, yeah. is, is just that I, um, I, I yesterday had a podcast recording with Melissa Perry um, who wrote Escaping yeah. the Build Trap and, and, and your book is called, or one of your books is, is called Learning to Build. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, can, I, I, think, I think the reason is, is that there's a, there's a pendulum, right? There's a lot of people who don't. I, I, the, my book is really about how I learned how to build. I was, you know, I'm dyslexic and, and I was told to be a construction worker or a baggage handler at the airport. And ultimately I, I was... Uh, befriended and basically mentored by some really amazing people who poured their knowledge into me to learn how to build. So I've worked on, like I said, over 3,500 different products and services, everything from the Patriot missile guidance system to Pokemon mac and cheese <laughs> and just about everything in between. And so, and to be honest, it's my curiosity that really is, has been dri driven to me. But what, what really helped me was learning methods and tools uh, of how to build. And so it's, it's, I think there is a build trap for sure. I think people, they don't learn enough around it. And so I don't think they're, I think they're very complementary ideas as opposed to actually opposite ideas. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, um, I, I think like Melissa's book is about something, something totally different. Um, and, yeah. and about a, a problem that many CTOs are facing that they like, continue or start building and, and instead of thinking about it first um, and thinking about the problem space, yeah. which is really important and which is also something that, that that you guys teach, right? That's right. That's really what Jobs Be Done is about is, is being able to put yourself in the shoes of, of your customer and understand uh, at, at your consumer and your customer, which are sometimes two completely different people, right? The buyer and the user are very different. And so being able to understand kind of their lives and understand what's important to them as opposed to trying to convince them about things. And what I learned is, is as a, a, an engineering school, so I have a, a undergrad in electrical engineering and then a, a mechanical and chemical masters. And so I've, I've been loving to build forever. But what I realized is that the lie I was told when I, when I went through engineering school was build it and they will come. It's just a lie. It doesn't happen. Well, it's, it's, it's I guess right? it sometimes work, <laughs> works, but, but, yeah, but, but in, 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 in most cases, what happens is I build something and then I got to go find of the 8 billion people in the world who yeah. needs it. Right. Where, where, what I do is I actually do, I do it the exact opposite way. I go find people with very specific problems that, that they need to have solved. And then I go develop product for that. And so it's a very different, it's almost like a, a reverse lens of, of it instead of, boy, what can I build? It's like, who needs something? And then, and then yeah, what can I build? It's, it's essentially like product discovery, right? Um, really, really understanding yep. like the first customer group, who are they, persona, and, and, and then. Well, it's, it's more than that, because here's the thing is that, that at some point, products are actually services. They have to work through space and time. And so what we have to do is it's not about a persona. It's not just about who, 
right? That's what I have a problem with personas is they just tell me who, but it doesn't tell me about when, where, and why. And most of the time what they do is they tell me about their usual behavior. But typically for people to do something new, they have to change their behavior. So how do these people handle change as opposed to what do they do on a regular Mm -hmm. basis? So you start to realize personas are actually not rich enough for me to actually design better product. That's why Jobs to Be Done was kind of created is I kept getting a, a lot of information of who, but then I'd have to guess a whole bunch of other information that wasn't right. I was wrong. And, and and how do you get from the like understanding the 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 problem space, understanding your 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 target group to to the actual change, uh, to to the change in yeah. behavior? So yeah. So what's what's so interesting is this is that if you really study what causes somebody to buy something new, so this is not about what causes somebody to buy the same thing over and over again. It's like what causes somebody to say today's the day I need a new mattress. Today's the day I need a new CRM. It's not random. It's very much caused, and you can actually start to see patterns of things that people have to have happen to them to enable them to say, I need something new. And so part of it is, is the, the first thing I would say is the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation. If, if your customer's not struggling with something, then they can't even see something new. So we have to be able to f- figure out what are they struggling with. So that's where we start. And then what happens is we basically then understand how do they go about figuring out how to buy something new? which is very different than how they use something on an ongoing basis today. And so it's a very different process. And so I actually went and learned criminal and intelligence interrogation methods to, to, to interview because most people lie to themselves about why they do stuff, right? It's crazy. And so you start to realize you have to understand that kind of stuff. You have to actually, so the, the way I talk about it is uh, most people get afraid when, when, we, when I talk about interviewing them, but it feels like therapy because most people haven't connected the dots of what happened in their lives to say, today's the day I needed a new coat rack. What was so interesting is I did an interview a couple of weeks ago and it took somebody 18 months to, to basically think about and finally purchase a coat wrap from Amazon for $137, 18 months. And you start to go, well, why did it take so long? Well, part of it is things had to happen to them to make them ready to buy it. And that's the part of the part. The point is, you, is, is as we understand that, we understand the causation, we then can understand how to design and develop better product. So if you ask my wife, I'm always ready to buy everything straight away. <laughs> is that yes. a personal problem? or? I, <laughs> no, so, I, so what I can tell you is one of the reasons why is because you have very little anxiety force. You don't actually have, you're not worried about the consequence of buying something and it not working, but you're, 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 you're actually very thirsty to make progress and to the point where you're actually buy things that won't yeah. work, but it doesn't <laughs> bother you, but it bothers your wife tremendously. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, right. And so, and so part of it is the framework helps us explain your yeah. behavior. That's the whole point is that I can explain people's behavior. The, the other interesting part is people say, well, there's uh, impulse buys. And when you start to really study them, there is no such thing as an impulse buy. They just didn't plan to buy it. And so consumers call it impulse. But when you actually look at what's happened to them and what they're hoping for. So that's the other part of this is it's not just about the problem and it's not just about the outcome. It's about the two of them together. It's the context and the outcome together that determines the value, the progress they're trying to make. And that's where we start. And, and if we can actually understand where people want to make progress and then insert products into that, those moments, it's way easier to develop. It's actually way more accepted and it grows way faster. So do you think people actually, like if, if, if you have that, that, that group of people that, 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 thinks about buying something do, do, do you think those people are actually searching for the the, the problem yeah, they have so, or so so here's the thing is that what i will tell you is i i never talk to people who for example i built houses yeah. right i would never talk to people who wanted to buy a house because at some point they would tell me they wanted everything and they wanted everything for free they had no chance to value it so what I did is I went and interviewed people who bought houses. What did they make trade-offs on? They all wanted this, but they actually bought something else. And by understanding what, how they went through the buying process, then I could actually help the people who hadn't bought yet. But most people go and talk to the people who want to buy a house, and then they build that, and nobody, nobody ends up buying it. 
because we're talking about the future and we're talking about nobody knows what we're going to have for lunch next Thursday. Though I could do a survey that said 37% of the people want a chicken sandwich to say, oh, we should have a chicken sandwich for lunch. But the reality is like, we're just still guessing. But if I talk to people who bought a house, it's now a fact. They already bought the house. What in the world had to happen to them to say today's the day that they would leave one house and move to a new house? Yeah, it's not yeah, random. Absolutely. And so this is where I'm applying my curiosity as an engineer to behavior and understanding behavior. And what you start to realize is people are irrational, but in context, right? But typically when we see something irrational, it means we don't have the whole story. Most people behave rationally, but it's because they see the world in a different way. And so what, what happens is, you know, context makes the irrational rational. And so typically when you hear somebody do something that's irrational, you need to actually then understand, you don't understand their context well enough and you're missing something from their story. And that's the key to being able to understand, understand what products we should be building. Because a lot of times they'll say contradictory things and ultimately it represents a trade-off they have to make. And we need to understand those trade-offs. And um, well, maybe, maybe one example, um, uh, like also a personal yeah. one again. Um, like downstairs in, the, in my company, I, I just have uh, a box with a new espresso machine uh, that I just bought. Yeah, <laughs> my my yes. wife hate me hate my wife hates me for that. I think um, it, it was. Yeah. I I I, ha I've, I had one for 13 years. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It's fairly fairly expensive, and I already had a fairly expensive one, which was 10 years old. So you could say yeah. like written off. Um, and yeah. maybe it was an irrational pur purchase. I, I'm not sure. But like, if you ask me today, what was important for me yeah. to, to, to buy it, it was actually like, yes, I wanted a new one. Plus, I wanted a more yep. silent one. Uh, and I wanted an energy-saving one, um, which because I think it's just like... Yep. And so, so this, is, this, is the, this is where I would say, this is the lies you're yes. telling yourself of how you justify it to yes. other people. But that's not really... So the thing is, is and, and now that you're on the other side, so through time and space, you're on the other side of buying it, you then make up the story of why yeah. you bought it. And what we try to do is understand, let's go back in time and understand what you knew when and why you did it. And what you start to realize is it's about certain things coming together of, you know, it, for example, the old espresso machine either getting louder or being too loud because all of a sudden there's more Zoom calls. Right. And so all of a sudden it's like, uh, you know, I can hear the, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I could interview you about this if you want, but it's, it would take about 40 minutes, but it's about really interrogating you to say what in the world was going on. Because the old espresso machine worked, yes, right? It was just very loud. But yeah. in the mornings, I wake up earlier than my kids yes. uh, at, let's say, 5.30 or ah. something. And um, I tend to wake up my kids with, with uh, like through making an espresso in the kitchen. Um, so I, yes. I think that's reality. Yeah. Or more of reality. So that so ultimately, so ultimately, when you bought it the first time, you didn't have children. You weren't thinking about kids. You you didn't care about how loud it was. And now the fact is, is the loud express machine wakes up the rest Absolutely. of the house. And and to be honest, you 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 didn't buy it for better coffee. You bought it so you could actually not make up the house while you well, got espresso. Uh, uh, let's say on the way to purchase, I also learned much more about like making perfect espresso. And then uh, yeah. I also know that the 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 one I get out of that new machine is is, is much better. Um, is better is better so so now so now you're piling out so part of this but this is where you could say at the moment you bought it it might have been of impulse but you had been researching it for a long time and you had been thinking about it for a long time roughly two years potentially yeah, yeah. yes exactly and so this is where we have to look at the entire journey because at some point in time i've got to be able to understand how 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 to get in your way and help you along the way with the process and at the same time how do i understand the trade-offs you're willing to make in order, again, what are you willing to pay more for? What are you willing to pay less for? Ultimately, to say, today's the day I'm going to buy a new espresso machine. It's mm -hmm. not random. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And so these are, the, these are the things as a technical person for me to understand these situations. It does three things. One is it gives me common language that when we talk about what the customers means, marketing, sales, and product all have the same definition of what customers mean by the language, which is critical. Right. That's the first thing. The second thing is now we actually start to translate those those what they want into what are the outcomes that they want and what are the metrics we need to put around it to know that they're making that progress. So it's not just about the output of creating a good coffee. 
It's about making sure I create a good coffee with a decibel level that's below this amount, right? Because that's part of the, the, the job that you're trying to get done, which is I want a good, a great coffee and, and with little noise, and I'm willing to pay more for it, mm-hmm. right? So, and then third is the trade-offs that the customer is willing to make get translated into the product as opposed to us making the trade-offs because we run out of time. Right. We end up making trade-offs on the product only because we run out of time. And if we actually match them to the trade-offs, the customers actually try will be willing to make. And and to be honest, not like I'm I'm willing to have a little bit less perfect coffee for a lot more less noise. Yeah. And shorter heat right? shorter heat and up so time. So this is where <laughs> yeah, and heat well, heat up time. So all of a sudden there's trade-offs you're willing to make up. And that's what we're trying to figure out is how do we actually look at those things and understand what are those trade-offs we could make. Because it's, we frame the problem differently as, as, as engineers. What's, what's, you know, to me, what's, what's interesting is most, most people think that we hire engineers because, because they're, they're supposed to have the answer. But, but we don't have the answer. We have to actually find the answer. We have to be good at finding answers. And that's really what we want to make sure that, that our engineers have is the right context so they can actually search in the right areas so we don't have to fix the product all the time. Okay. Uh- Let's let's stay with my example. Um, where does the total addressable market come into play? Like, let, let's say you're you're you're, you're <laughs> an espresso machine company just, from Italy, and you wanna yeah. wanna produce like the perfect espresso machine. And now you hear from like a few folks, um, and and like through your interviewing technique, um, yeah. what what the problem is really, and then you you try to solve that problem. Like, how do you make sure you have a proper so time? Yeah, so I I think Tam is is Tam is actually uh, more set up from the supply side and the way they they, they calculate Tam. I mean, I just actually came from a, pri- a private equity conference where they talked about Tam and Sam and all these different things. And and the reality is, the way I think about it is, what's the serviceable market, right? Not the total addressable market, but the serviceable addressable market. And that means how many people are really struggling. So I could actually count the number of households that could have espresso machines and say, these are all the possible people who could have espresso. But ultimately, what are the things that have to happen to them to, to pull espresso into their lives? That actually makes it more real in terms of that number. And so you start to realize that at some point, not everybody needs a new payroll system, but people who have had these kinds of things happen to them need new payroll systems. And so I can actually talk more about the true the true serviceable uh, market as opposed to the total addressable market. Understood. Tired of stifting through countless resumes and struggling to find the right tech talent? Look no further. WorkGenius has some exciting news to share with you. WorkGenius has acquired ExpertLead. Now they bring even more efficiency to your hiring process. Real-time live coding assessments for all. Whether you're a startup or an established enterprise, WorkGenius is now also here to turbocharge your hiring process. Say goodbye to the guesswork and endless interviews. WorkGenius matches your candidates with experts, saving you time and getting you top talent. Win-win. How it works? Share your tech job applicants. WorkGenius takes care of the rest. Your candidates? They are in the hands of seasoned pros. WorkGenius matches them with experienced senior developers and puts them through tailored, enjoyable and fair technical interviews. Your company gets the cream of the crop, the most sought-after talents in the industry, and you save your hardworking tech and HR teams valuable time. If you want to try it out, visit link.alphalist.com slash work. Um, and... How how can I apply it? I mean, uh, obviously you're like you're you're, you're a pro. You you you've did it like thirty yeah. times, three thousand five hundred times. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I've done it, a, or even I, more. I I've done so yeah. many interviews. Yes. Uh, yeah. How, how, how do you apply it? Like how can how can anyone apply it? I think I think the first thing is to actually um, take the take a moment to take a step back to understand the core question that that if you could understand the answer to it it would answer and unlock a lot of the other questions. So like, again, what causes somebody to say today's the day they need a new CRM? If I can answer that, I might be able to answer a lot more questions. And so first of all, we do is we actually spend time trying to frame the question the right way, that it's large enough. And it's, it's almost like what I, what I talk about is, hypo, uh, is doesn't have any hypotheses. 
It's more about like this. I know, for example, people bought a new mattress, but I have no idea why. Let me actually then hear their stories and, and build hypotheses from it. So I call it hypothesis building research as opposed to hypothesis proving research. Most of the research I, I was taught was the scientific me- method of creating a hypothesis and, and then testing it. But the reality is, what do you do when you're not smart enough to even form a hypothesis? <laughs> mm. Right? And so part of it is framing the right question. The other part is then basically studying. And, and the, only, the one key framework I would talk about is this framework called the, the forces of progress. And that there has to be, there's four forces that are involved in helping people change. There's a push of the, the, the situation, something about the current situation that causes them to say what they're doing is not going to work. And we need to understand that. And then there's an outcome, uh, basically a pull of the pull of the new solution, which is the thing that the outcome that they're hoping for that they can't do today, that that would actually help them make mm. progress. And those are the two fuel forces. And then there's two frictional forces. One is the anxiety of the new of, you know, how do you use it? How am I going to pay for it? Um, what do I do with the old one? All the anxieties about putting something new in. And then there's another force of the, the habit of the present, which is the stuff that they already have in place and ultimately are hard to change. And so you start to realize if the, if the push and the pull are not greater than the habit and the anxiety, you can't actually change. And so by studying these people and studying people who've bought houses or have bought CRMs or have bought different your product and understanding when did they know what, right? Because it's not about just when they bought it. It's like, when did they have the first thought? When did they passively look? How did they actively look? What decisions did they make and what trade-offs did they have to make? Ultimately, how did they decide? By understanding that journey and the forces at play, that's how you end up doing okay. this. And so I know it sounds a little complicated, but the reality is ultimately you're trying to understand what cause causes people to say today's the day they need something yeah. new. So it, it actually reminds me a bit of the AIDA model, I guess you know it, right? Um I don't, uh, don't know awareness, that, interest, is... desire, and action um, from from marketing. Oh yeah, okay, yep. theory essentially. Yeah, um, that you have have to yep. think it through. Well, and this is where this is yeah. So the, uh, it's I would say it's 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 they're they're parallel kind of concepts because mine is like at some point you have to be a, the people are problem aware and solution unaware, and then they become problem aware and they actually have a refinement of the problem. So it's almost like a P two problem two, and then they have a solution set. And then ultimately, they have to make trade-offs to f- pick one because not everyone is exactly alike, and they're not. They're, they have to match it to their situation, so they have to match the context and outcome to the product. And so ultimately, it's about putting all those things together. It's so I, I think of it as set theory of how, what are the sets of things that have to happen, and what are the sets of things the product has to have to map together. And uh, what what are the other building blocks of of, of jobs to be done? Is that like the essential one, or yeah? So the essential one is the forces, and the the, the other one is called the timeline, which is the passive looking or first thought, passive looking, active looking, deciding, first use, and ongoing use, and and that's about how people build, go from one habit to another habit, and it's ultimately uh, study, you know how do we actually understand how people want to buy. So instead of deciding what our sales process is, what, we, what we've been doing is helping people think about it as how do people buy and how do we map the sales process to how people want to buy as opposed to how do we want to sell, <laughs> right? It's an engineer's approach to the whole thing. You know, it's, so it's like, you got to remember, I'm an engineer trying to make sense of marketing and sales. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I can also imagine that this worked out quite well um, for, for Jason Fried and, and Ryan Singer, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, DHH, uh, yep, yep. And Ryan. And and um, I think they are a great example because they are a bootstrapped SaaS, um, really like founder operated. Is that a, a client yep. group that you often have or uh, like a, pe- yep. a peer group you often yep. see? We've done... Um, we, we do everything from, uh, uh, bootstrap to basically, you know, kind of, uh, uh, angel, angel led. I do a uh, tech stars and, and Y Combinator. So I do some of that, that kind of stuff as well. Um, but then we will help people in series A, series B. Um, and then so sometimes we help big corporations as well. Right. So it's, 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 and in most cases, this is, this has been applied in many, many different, you know, almost every different vertical that you can imagine we've applied it in. I mean, what, what, what was what, what was the most unexpected application of the framework you have seen? 
Yeah. So I think it, it was, it was a few years ago and I was doing some work for clay and we were, we were, um, looking at, um, he, he's, he was a, he's Mormon. And one of the things we were doing is what caused people to join the Mormon church and leave the Mormon church. And what you started to realize is some of the competitors to organize religion were things like soul cycle and CrossFit. And that people would use, you know, they basically said, well, you know, I went there because, you know, I wanted, I needed to build a stronger sense of myself. I wanted to help others. Like all of a sudden you started to realize that on Sundays, they, instead of going to church, they yeah. go to CrossFit. You start to realize that they compete with each other. Right. And so in some places you start to realize like, okay, like, well, that's very interesting. But at some point when somebody wants to get married or somebody passes away, like CrossFit can't help you. <laughs> and so you start to realize that religion has basically done a lot of different things for a long time. And, and it's almost like specialized things have been coming in to actually uh, steal the attention to other places. It's, it's very interesting, but it was, I didn't even think of applying it. So there. <laughs> in, in, in right? front of every church of Scientology, you, you find, you find a CrossFit, uh, ad these days then. <laughs> yes. <that's laughs> Or right. maybe you that's should. Right. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Okay. That's that, right. That, that's, that's interesting. Um, what, 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 like implementing it actually, like, um, What, what yes. would it be like, would you recommend to read the book or? Yeah. So, so, um, I think there's, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's, there's a learning to build is just, uh, uh, about the, the five skills. What I did is I kind of looked at, you know, I'd worked with so many mm -hmm. people and I had uh, so, such great mentors and I had learned so many different things that I kind of took like the, the top 1% or 5% of the people that I work with who are just amazing innovators and say, right, what did they know that these other people didn't know? And, and so it's really distilling that down. And so it kind of goes through what are those skills. And one of them is called Uncovering Demand, where we talk about it. But there's another book I wrote called um, Demand Side Sales. And that, that actually has the entire process of understanding how people buy and how to translate it to both uh, sales, marketing, and product. And that might be a little bit better one to, to look at. But the, the, the real thing is, is to pick, you know, to be honest, if, if you've already... If your product already exists, right? It's like talk to the last, you know, 10 people or find the the widest group of 10 people who've recently bought your 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 product and talk to them about why mm -hmm. they bought. And every time they mention the product, you go like, "Well, why was that important?" Mm -hmm. Every time they mention a feature, it's like, "Well, what could you do that you couldn't do before?" And ask them about how because this is about taking a step back to see their life and how your product fits into mm -hmm. their life. Right. The other part is by doing this in a cross-functional way, the technical people hear it, the marketing people hear it, the sales people hear it, and though they they they'll they'll twist it, what happens is out of this comes a very common language of when people say this, they mean that. So for example, when people say, Oh, I want it to be easy, it turns out there's 22 dimensions of easy. Easy to easy to buy, easy to store, easy to uh, Uh, open, easy to install, easy to uninstall. Easy, like, what does easy mean? And you start to realize, like, well, we can't do all versions of easy. And so it helps everybody realize that we just don't say easy, faster, cheaper, and we don't, and then say, leave it at that. And so it's getting down to the right level of granularity so we understand the requirements we have to go build or the trade-offs we have to go make. Understood. Um, it Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling and going a little too deep. No, in some no, no, it's great, it's great, it's great. Others. So, so hopefully, hopefully, I'm because this is—I mean, this is the best way to do what, this. What, what about um, quantitative versus qualitative? I mean, it's it's mostly qualitative. Uh, yep. what, 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 how do you feel feel about? So, so what's very interesting is is um, I am a I, I I I do like quantitative, but the reality is what what I realize is that we don't actually understand the variables well enough to actually go do quantitative mm -hmm. first. And so part of this is actually discovering and identifying the right variables, the right contextual variables, the right outcome variables to actually help us describe what is the situation people find themselves in and what are the outcomes they really want. And it's not the features and benefits. Features and benefits are the, about the product, right? At it, some point in time, it's when the product meets the customer in the situation, then you can have features and benefits. I want to know their context and outcome before they meet mm. the product, mm. right? Yeah, so uh, this would actually be then the second 
step that when they meet the product, then like it's just an additional layer, right? Then we can yeah, do quantitative. Just an additional layer. That's right. So the, 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 the way I describe it is I try to do qualitative to understand where the edge of language exists and then where I need to create prototypes to actually have interaction and create quantitative mm -hmm. data. And so the qualitative is I still need the words because the words are how people actually have to find and select. So if I don't connect it to the words, I'm kind of screwed. So I need to start with the words and then connect it back to experiences. And how do you apply it in an iterative way? Like, is it is it something you do one off? Like, did, did Jason call you at a certain day and 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 say, "Hey, can you help me?" And, and or do you do you? So 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 the first thing is I, I built this as is kind of a frustration of of every time I'd want to go do research, it became this big exercise of trying to do something, and it took you know anywhere from four months to 12 months. And it was like anywhere from a half a million, you know, 200,000 to 500,000 to a million dollars to do any kind of research that I wanted to do through the typical marketing research channel. It, it, that would have relevance to me. And so I, I've, I, I just built something that said, how do I just do a few interviews so I can understand what's going on? So we, we can do this in about three weeks, right? So we, and we typically do it when we have bigger questions on what we call the demand side. And so you don't need to do it that often and you don't need to do many because it's not about, it's not about statistical significance. It's about identifying the variables and you can see them. The patterns start to emerge very, very quickly, you know, with, with seven to seven to 10, if you will, but by 10 to 12, we usually cover 80% of the variables we need that, that we can see then what's going on. And then we can build quantitative around that. Understood. Um, what do you, what do you think about like cross-functional collaboration i mean who who does it typically like who who does the interviews is that like the product manager or um who who does it and so in, in really good organizations they actually all of them mm -hmm. can do them all different parts of the organization can actually be part of the interview and so and so sometimes it's it might be product and marketing sometimes it might be uh sales and 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 uh customer mm -hmm. success but usually it's it's either uh, so in small organization this usually starts in product Right, but in some organizations, this might start in marketing, and 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 ultimately, it starts in one of those two areas, and then and then from there, it it kind of, but it usually has to be cross-functional because it's really about building the alignment of the language, and and a common understanding of what people mean. That literally, most disconnects and most rework happen in the process because we've misinterpreted what people said, mm. <laughs> right. And, and so that's really one of the bigger benefits of all this is the alignment. And if it, if product takes usually twice as long as you think, it's typically because we're not clear mm -hmm. on the language. I, I'm, I'm, I was asking that because uh, many people with an engineering background actually try to like guess the, the problem really and jump to the solution straight away and, oh. and, 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 and maybe don't even like take product seriously. Um, to, to be yep. honest, like... Yep. Oh, oh, the product so came up with that. Is, uh, yeah, where is it from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's what's really interesting is so again as as uh, starting as an engineer and realizing like again I think for me the greatest gift I got is that I was dyslexic because to be honest when as a dyslexic I know I'm going to get it start with a D mm. not an A right and so ultimately I know I have to work for it. And so the thing is, is most, most people who get A's and, and the way they taught us in engineering school was we already know the answers. Our job is to have the answers is mm -hmm. to come up with the answers. But the reality is when you start to look at it, most of our first answers are always mm -hmm. usually wrong. And, and, and the way we learned in engineering school is people gave us mm -hmm. the problems, but now as we, we define the problems, we actually have to have th think about it very, very differently. And so to me, this is was my whole thing is, is, I kept being wrong about how I assumed the, the answer or the mm. solution was. And I did it enough that I realized that I had to listen to what the customer, and the customer wasn't telling me what mm. they meant and what they said, like what the words they used and what I interpreted was, was the, where it was broken down. So I actually had to really spend the time to understand what they meant by things because it was so easy for me to jump in logic to say, oh, if they say, boy, I'm struggling because it's too slow. Oh, they want it faster. The reality is I'm sure it's too slow. And what they want is they want mm. more, more and faster are not mm. the same. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so this is where, where engineers, we are very fast thinkers, but what ha happens is sometimes the customer is not as fast as we are. And we end up over engineering the product as opposed to actually making, 
you know, making mm. something they want. Hello, it's me, Toby. Can you hear me? I was just making sure the sound is Zipgate worthy. After all, they have spent over 20 years obsessing over audio quality. It's only right that this podcast they are sponsoring is clear. Zipgate is a cloud-based all-in-one telephony solution that will satisfy pretty much every use case in your company. From sales to customer support, having a good connection with your customers has never been easier. The new Zipgate app comes with AI-powered features, noise cancelling, and a seamless integration with other business tools like all major CRMs. Your sales team will love it. Their intuitive user interface makes business calling even more efficient and is available pretty much on any device or operating system. Great for hybrid teams. Their features are so targeted, it's almost like they were listening in. Plus, as a German company, they know all your GDPR needs. Sounds good? Well, keep listening as it gets better. As an Alphalist CTO podcast listener, you get 500 euros worth of free credits when you sign up at link.alphalist.com zipgate and use the code zipgatealpha in the form there. Yeah, that's, that's why I was asking like, uh, like assuming something too early um, is, is, yes. is not a good idea. Um, well... If you think about it, 70% of our life cycle costs are fixed in the first 10% of how we develop and set up a, a, a new platform. And yet we spend all the money usually on the back end. Absolutely. And we don't spend that time up front thinking. And so the more we can spend that time up front thinking about the, the right things and the boundaries and understanding kind of the limitations, we then will actually have a better understanding of what to build and what to yeah. develop. And, and that's actually time spent together. Um, because yes. it's important for all of us. Um, that, that's, that's my understanding and, and my learning. Yes. Um, so yeah, thanks a lot. Um, very, very helpful. Um, what, what do you think about, um, other methods like, like, uh, Marty Kagan's book inspired, I guess you read it, et cetera. Like what, what do you, what, yeah. do, you, what yeah. do you think other approaches? I, I, again, I, I think this is, so the thing is, is, is most, most people ask me like, you know, what, what do you have an innovation process? Yeah. And what I say is that the innovation process is, is really, uh, dependent to be honest in the industry, the, the, the company itself and the, and the set of products that you're actually competing mm. with. And that, that there's no one way to look at a generalized process, at least from my perspective. Right. And so ultimately it's about skills and what skills do people need to have? And so I think of like what Marty taught, well, everybody has these different set of skills. And what, what I think companies have to do is they have to be able to figure out how to assemble the set of skills that build the culture mm. they want. The skills create mm. the culture, mm. right? Or the lack of skills also create the culture. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. So there's no ultimate. I, I, I don't think like there's people who are trying to say jobs. I'd rather do this versus jobs or personas versus jobs. And like, I know how, like, to be honest, personas can be helpful and jobs can be helpful. And I know how to use them both together. And the real question is, is, is it useful to help you make, make progress mm. with your product or with your company? And so ultimately, it's that's the question. And so I, I think of these as complementary sets of tools as opposed to overlap or competing sets of tools. Okay. If, if you could give my listeners, um, CTOs who often feel they know what their customers want, uh, free, free tips, yeah. like what, what would it be? Yeah. So I think the first one is two things is, is, is take, try to take a step back and one, find the struggling moments that they have that they want to address. There's a difference between uh, the way I say it is bitching ain't switching. It just because people complain about it doesn't mean they want to do anything about it. So what you want to do is look for where place people have workarounds for things, or they've actually figured out how to export it and then import it and then do this and then do like, where do your customers really struggle? So instead of starting with what can you do with your product, you need to be able to actually understand kind of like, where do they struggle? If you have a bunch of things you can do, how do you actually map them to help people in their struggling moments would be another way to think about that. The, the, the second thing I would, I would suggest is to think about the progress they're trying to make. Think of the, the, almost the state they are in and, and, and ultimately what, what, what are the outcomes that they're seeking and, and if they get them, what would be the benefit for them? And so it's not about the outputs, but ultimately you can then understand how much you can charge or the value they're willing to put on it. 
in terms of how they'll think about it. So as you can see the progress and think about the progress they're trying to make before we think about the product or service. And then the, the third thing I would say is um, ultimately we always never have enough time, money, or resources to actually build the, the perfect thing we want. And so to be honest, what, what I would say is when you're, when you're really working with the customer, try to figure out the things that, you don't, that don't matter at all that you can suck at, that you actually don't really, doesn't matter if it works or doesn't work. Because at some point we try to end up trying to be perfect in everything and we end up being perfect in nothing. I think Jason Fried says it best, you're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass whole. And so how do you actually figure that out and make sure you understand what, what, what we don't need to worry about? So like, you know, if you, if you look at Southwest Airlines uh, here in the US, right, they don't worry about snacks. Nobody's not going to fly them because their snacks suck. And if you tell them their snacks suck, they don't care because they're not going to, you know, they know what the four or five important things are, which is on-time flights, going to places, you know, that, that are, if you will, uh, kind of remote and at the same time being the lowest cost fare and on time. That's it. Like the, if the snacks suck, they'll bring their own snacks, but, that, but they're not actually accommodating for everything and they know what they can suck did, at. Did you consult them or? <laughs> no. No, it's just an observation. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> but I, 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 I do actually do a lot of work in that space because most people try to be good at everything and yeah, they just can't. Absolutely. And, and, and I can imagine that like you, really did, like you really flexed your observation muscle, right, throughout the years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, so that's the whole thing is, is what, what I, I would say. You become Neo from the Matrix when you can start to see struggling moments everywhere. <laughs> And you know right, exactly what, like, oh, I can put that there. Oh, I could do that. And you just start, and like at some point they become distracting because you can see where opportunity is just about everywhere. <laughs> I see struggling moments. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So um, I, was, I was in the airport the other day and it was like, I, I was counting them. I got to like 137. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I got to stop. I got to stop. <laughs> Ah, that's great. Um, I, I still have a little surprise for you as a, as a closing question. Um, so, so Jason Fried actually told me about a, a secret Easter egg that he built into Basecamp after after, after like doing doing your interview techniques and and working with you. Um, so it came yeah. up through your research. I don't know if you knew. And and DHH secretly developed it, and it's it's like hidden in the product, and you really have to know it. Um, there's like a hidden prompt where you can. Actually, enter a, 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 you can select a person and you can you can enter a year, and then you travel back in time, um, like physically, um, to that year, and 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 you end up in that person's life, and 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 I now select you because you obviously still have a have a user at Basecamp uh, in, in in their product, yeah. um, uh, in the in the project they 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 organize their product with. And I now select 1985. And you were back then working as supply quali supplier quality engineer at Ford at the Ford Motor Company, and 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 yes, we I can was. now observe yourself for a while. Um, I think yeah. you, you started as as a student intern, and 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 it really like yeah. So I started as an intern. I, to be honest, I I I got an internship from a gentleman by the name of W. Edwards Deming, who was Dr. Yeah. Deming. He's the one who's the father of Lean. I thought he was somebody's grandfather. I actually sat down next to him and, and had a conversation with him. I, I, I asked him, he, he said this to me, I asked him 52 questions in 22 <laughs> minutes and said, I'm one of the most curious people he's ever, ever met. And he asked me if I'd be his intern for the summer. <laughs> and so that's how I got into Ford Motor Company. And, and um, basically I went to, I ended up going to Japan and, and being part of the very front line to help kind of reduce product development cycle time from 70, it used to take 70, 72 months to develop a car from concept to, to, to so customer. It, it really introducing and, agile processes, they, essentially, right? Uh, that's exactly right. And we, and we, we did parallel. We did, so I, we went and learned lean, basically at Toyota, and then brought it back and, and applied it at, in, in 1985 to 1992. That's all I did is basically, and I did it in the U.S., I did it in Europe, um, And basically did it through the supply chain and help reduce product development cycle time from to seventy uh, to thirty six months. So we cut it That's in half. Great, and made quality and made quality better and extended the life of the vehicle simultaneously. That, that, so we went from sixty thousand miles to a hundred thousand miles. That's, that's really great, but 
Sorry, you're but, bringing me now. You, but, you just opened the, the door. The, the I, box I, I, I of Pandora. <laughs> the back. box of Pandora. <laughs> it's like wait, 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 wait. Be but careful. Now, now, now we all like we we all see that, right? Like uh, we we all understood it, yeah. and 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 now you have uh, the chance to whisper something um, into into young young Bob's ears. What what would you whisper yourself? Yeah. Like? Um. <laughs> the first thing I would say is. Uh, uh, I would tell myself to slow down. I was I was moving very very quickly, and I was not being as diligent as I should have. And I I should have uh, relished the time with the, these people uh, because they were brilliant and they taught me so much. But there's there's times where I wish I was paying more attention. Um, I think that that would be the first thing is is that uh, the, these these people in your life though they they seem like the, that you're they're your boss or that your colleague or whatever. At some point in time, they're way more special than that. And to, to to and to be honest, I do this now is like I try to be in the moment with everybody who's with me because you just you want to you want to be so mm. mindful of what's what's going on. And so that's that's the one piece of advice I would mm. give myself. Mm. I think that's a good advice. <laughs> like really learning how yeah. to focus and 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 not saying yes to everything. Yes, um, yes. all that, all that. That's a good one. That's a good question. Thanks a lot. So uh, yeah, th thanks for being my guest here. Um, really, really oh, yeah. great, great, my great pleasure. Guest. Good, good content, and um, looking forward to getting. Hopefully, the CTOs can relate to what I'm talking about. Like, I, I feel like I had to go to the dark side, which is like the the, the sales and marketing side. Like, like because I, I like I felt like they were feeding me a whole bunch of wrong information, and so I end up having to try to do it myself. But I didn't have the right method, so I end up kind of flipping over the lens and going like, okay, I'm going to go in here and figure this out. And so, you know, it's like, it, 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 I'm a nerd at heart and it's just one of those things where I love to build, but it's like, at some point, like I, I do feel like I, I, I have to play this demand side uh, strong because at some point it's, it's like a, from a product perspective and an engineering perspective, I feel like it's our mm. blind spot. Absolutely. We almost assume we Absolutely. already know. And it, and and it's and it's just it's one of those things. Having spent now thirty years of my life studying why people change, it's just so much easier for me to develop product because I don't have to try to go find people who want it. I actually know what to go build because the problem's yeah, obvious. Can imagine it straight away. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and it's kind of cheating, right? It's it's a form of a cheat, but it but at some point it it, it it's very very successful and useful for me. I, I think it's like just a quicker path to dopamine normally, right? Um, and that's why we do yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. So, um, Bob, thanks that's a lot right. for being my guest and uh, hope to get you over to Germany at a certain point. Uh, let's let's work on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll work have, on have that. A, have a great day and, and, and hope to see you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Oscillist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.